0: We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Scotia Monkovich Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the emergency management and creative sectors as they prepare, respond and recover from disasters. Today, my guest is Natalie Eckleton the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, or FRR for short. FRRR is the only national foundation specifically focused on ensuring social and economic strength in remote, rural and regional Australia. Community-led recovery is something you've heard us talk a lot about through this podcast. Natalie is one of the people working on the ground with communities to build capacity in remote and regional areas.
1: Sometimes community-led can be uh, interpreted as being the community does everything, um, what we mean is that policy design or service design or any other system level design needs to be designed from the perspective of localised knowledge, experience, etc. And I think that's just common sense. But again, it's not a shifting of responsibility, it's an inclusion of responsibility.
0: As we all know, it's been a challenging number of years for these communities, with the cascading impacts of droughts, bushfires and floods. We wanted to hear from Natalie about her vision for the challenges ahead and the work FRRR are doing on the ground to support the creation of vibrant, resilient communities. Please enjoy my conversation with creative responder Natalie Eglinton. Welcome to the Creative Responders podcast, Natalie, and thanks so much for joining us. Where are you joining us from today?
1: I'm on Zha, Zha Run Country in Malden, central Victoria, so right in the middle of Victoria.
0: And crisp weather, I hear.
1: Yeah, getting down to, you know, two in the mornings. A oh, bit, bit fresh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's lovely to have you here with us, Natalie. I've um, been following you and the work of FRRR, Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal, for a long time. You've been there since 2015 and you've led the organisation through a period of significant growth and impact and also responding to what has been a very challenging time for regional and rural communities. For some of the listeners who may not know who FRRR are, can you tell us a little bit about the organisation and the work that you do? Yes,
1: sure, and it's great to be here with you. Uh, So FRRR has been around for about 22 years and was established as a um, a philanthropic vehicle that could enable um, those wanting to give, so private philanthropy, institutional philanthropy, corporates, um, everyday people, uh, to have a giving mechanism to support rural communities across Australia. Um, So we we also partner with governments um, to help... Uh, with funding programs but also um, addressing key policy issues uh, and particularly with a focus on small and more remote communities that are um, often locked out of opportunities but yet play a a really critical role in the economic and, and social fabric of Australia. Since 2000, we've distributed about $135 million in funding um, to about 12,000 initiatives, and a big proportion of that has been in uh, both response to and preparation for um, natural disasters, including drought, um, which is, you know...
0: A very big one and one that often doesn't get much of of a say in it, doesn't it, isn't it? So Natalie, as you know, we at Creative Recovery Network uh, advocate for the potential of arts-led collaborations to inspire fresh approaches to challenges faced by communities. And I've been very fortunate to collaborate with you and FRRR in recent years and certainly know that you're one of the key bodies that fund a lot of the creative recovery work that we've been following. So I'd like to say Natalie is one of the great champions of this work because of you've seen firsthand how the arts can support and strengthen communities. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how you see the arts and creativity being utilised as an effective tool for support or change making or communi- communication or other things that are so very necessary in terms of building resilient communities either with a specific examples or just generally some of the impacts you've noticed over your time working with rural and regional communities?
1: I mean, it's it's been really clear to me in the time that I've worked in this field just how powerful a role the arts can play. Um, and my first engagement was probably around the Black Saturday recovery um, and supporting some arts-led initiatives in that context. And what I really noticed was that in a recovery environment it's really easy for some people to be missed or invisible or to not engage in mainstream recovery activities um, and, and potentially not get the support that they um, could benefit from to help them in their recovery and the arts just has a really powerful way of fostering inclusion and participation and creating environments that are safe and that words are not the only tool that are used to express experience.
0: Often we find it really hard to find the appropriate yes, words, don't we? These unimaginable right. situations that we find ourselves in. Yes,
1: but we can we can express them in other ways and it can help, you know, to really process trauma and to, to give shape and to find commonality and to share stories. So, you know, as a pure therapeutic tool, it's really powerful, but also... You know, some of the great initiatives that I've seen have been around placemaking um, post-disaster, um, where it's about everything that um, comes with a, a destruction of, of place around you in terms of the physical destruction, if it's been a flood or a fire, for example, um, or even prolonged drought where the landscape is so scarred for so long, the um, ability to reimagine as a community and, and recreate that sense of place um, through physical um, markers as well. You know, we think about sculptures and art trails and, and things that immerse people back in their place with such depth and really foster different conversations about the future of the community and allow, allow for that holding of history um, but also, you know, looking forward. So, you know, they're, they're all the really quite critical things but they can be so intangible and there's there's really no other format that can foster that. You know, you can do all the planning processes you like but you, you never get there to those places.
0: Well, it, it's about how we mark or understand our identity, isn't it? Which is why we live in the places that we do.
1: Arts can be viewed as a, you know, a thing that's for some people. It can be seen as, uh, you know, a particular art form or, a, um, you know, a particular type of method, for example. But in a, in a recovery context or in a disaster preparedness and community resilience context, it can actually be a bridge um, between parts of the community who might not have ordinarily Um, spent time together or spoken to each other um, necessarily. You know, I think about things like men's sheds getting involved with, um, you know, the um, local kinder and maybe um, an environment group and you get these different groups working together and creating new new spaces together using arts as a platform and that might be, you know, a whole range of different methods.
0: It enables a kind of leveller, doesn't it? We can create safe places for what can be often very complex and uh, difficult conversations to be had in terms of how we view our future or what our potential um, steps are in terms of our community's sustainability.
1: Yeah, that's right. There is a piece about uh, economic um, well-being in communities, particularly in a recovery context and you know, we, we really noticed that there are a few things that get communities going again. You know, one of them is running things like events that help people to come back to towns and spend a bit of money there. Mm. Um, but arts is a, a platform that is, you know, often a, a really big contributor um, and particularly as recovery goes on because you can keep on evolving the story and the offering for people to get involved with. Um mm. And you know you can get all parts of the community involved as well. But the you know the economic um, driver is really interesting, I think. Um, and you know I think for rural towns generally, um, you know that that's true. But in a disaster context, it's um, it's even more true because it's something tangible that the rest of the world can connect with and be involved with, as well as the the local community.
0: Mm, and offer a, a different kind of framework of support, yes, and encouragement. Well, this year is it's already bought. Bored- Uh, a lot of challenges to rural and regional communities facing impacts of serious flooding events. We're sitting Mm. in my communities in Queensland and in New South Wales. And, of course, this is coming off the back of COVID lockdowns and restrictions and before that, the black summer bushfires. So, you know, we're living in a real experience of climate impact. What what do you think are the major barriers in this current moment or these current senses within our communities for for Responding to disasters, like what could we be working on to improve their capacity to prepare and respond effectively, and and have what can be safe and stronger futures?
1: I think one of the um, observations that is becoming you know really acute for us is the level of fatigue um, in communities, and that that successive um, you know that experience of successive and cumulative crises uh, you know is a real it, it really it depletes. There's no break between. I think that's what we've experienced in the last couple of years. There's, there's been very little break between to rejuvenate, replenish, reset, um, and so the challenges for doing this work uh, for me are around how we how we look after people fundamentally.
0: We have such a need for nurture right now, don't we? Like, how yes. do we look at better ways to to nurture to so that we can recharge our batteries and hold together.
1: Yeah, and keep doing the work that needs to be done. Um, Mm. You know, there's only so many people. There's only so much (laughs) anyone can do. And what we're experiencing is that the work to be done is so much more than we've ever had before. And as I said, the the time between is so limited that there isn't that time to, you know, we're we're planning um, in layered ways as communities about what we're going to do and how we're going to prepare. Um, And we're almost, we're preparing in the midst of recovery, which yes. um, I think is a newer context. It's not yes. a surprising one. We've known that no. this <laughs> is the experience that we would be having. Um, mm. But I think the, the thing I, I guess, care about and am and, and, and concerned about is the, as you've said, the, the need to nurture people, but also the need to resource people. We're asking a lot of people that are often not being paid for their work. You know, a lot of this... Practice happens with a few paid resources and mostly volunteer effort or mostly a lot of goodwill and a lot of collaboration and partnerships, which is incredibly powerful and important, but at the same time it, it can compromise wellbeing being
0: yeah, and particularly challenging in this day and age when the volunteer rate is decreasing. I'm just right. uh, talking mm. to a range of community members here in Orbos where I am today and um, this concern about the depletion of the volunteer source and no sense of how to find new energy. And, and you know, I have to say an increasing expectation responsibility being put back on our volunteer groups. Like, mm. I, I mean, a key focus of your work is exploring how and to what extent we take on this notion of community-led approaches, which I think Mm. is kind of a pendulum of how people understand that. But in order to have community-led approaches to enable communities to be better prepared or to be better connected, the Get Ready project that the FRRR undertook and what the pilot programs across the communities developed. And I'm wondering if you can talk about what you learnt from this about leadership within communities and how we might support that growth of community leaders and enable more effectual or more kind of sustainable community-led programs, particularly with this view of tiredness and depleting volunteerism and the stresses that um, life is bringing to people now? Yes. So the, the Get Ready
1: initiative um, was a partnership with the New South Wales government and um, a number of uh, private philanthropic partners that uh, sought to pilot the um, what we call the Disaster Resilient Future Ready Program model, and we worked in three New South Wales communities and we're currently um, starting that in three Victorian communities. It started um, quite a few years ago with, a, I guess, a a curiosity about how we might amplify the role of community agency and how we might formalise the role of community knowledge um, in formalised systems of disaster preparedness um, And so it was really kind of the the model is about how we can help to facilitate wider cross-sector dialogue within communities and processes that actually um, bring community knowledge, wisdom, lived experience and practical insight into those formalised plans so that when a disaster does occur, uh, the responses are fit for purpose for that location. And, you know, that's down to very practical things like, you know, how do we communicate in our town? How do we get information from that person to that person? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it a text message chain? Is it, you know, Facebook? Those sorts of things that sometimes only emerge at the time of a crisis and they're very organic. So our our thinking was, you know, we know that there are a lot of really effective things that communities mobilise around, but they're often done in reaction to the context that they're in or the crisis they're in and they're not usually treated as part of the formal response system. Um, and so there's both risk in that not being part of the formal system and um, communities going their own way without the support they need necessarily.
0: Well, we've seen so much evidence of that in this latest flood impacts, haven't we? You know, the, the good and the, and the challenging and, you know, if we can't address that more, particularly now, then we're sort of missing much, such a major opportunity, aren't we, to address that?
1: Yeah, and I think that sometimes we get into binary discussions about these things. It's good or bad to have, you know, community members and citizens um, driving local relief efforts. I think we need to acknowledge that the fact is that is what happens. Community members mm. are the first um, responders. And so rather than debating whether that's right or wrong, um, I think we need to resource and invest in that level and provide, you know, the right capacity support for those people and, and have it within the system so that it's not an and or or a, a blame game um, but a, a really embedded part of how we deal with crisis in communities. And that goes for COVID, it goes for, you know, any any kind of crisis that's happening in a community. And so the, the Future Ready program is, is really about that. Um, and, you know, I, I think I, I really talk about it as increasing the level of um, authority of community mm knowledge. And I guess the the other part is about what community led means and sometimes community led can be interpreted as being the community does everything. What we mean is that policy design or service design or any other system level design needs to be designed from the perspective of localized knowledge experience, mm. etc. and I think that's just common sense. But again, it's not a shifting of responsibility, it's an inclusion of responsibility.
0: Hmm. And, a share, you know, it's all shared responsibility in the end too. See, it's interesting how we use language and it becomes kind of complex when we're trying to make things clearer. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And it, it can imply that community-led means no one else should be leading um, yeah. and I don't think that's helpful either. No. Um, but it, it is about just, um, I guess, anchoring anchoring the design from the place and from mm. the people that know the context Quite simply.
0: Hmm. Um, Well, one of the things that we're working on with you uh, currently, I suppose, is in the same vein, trying to look at ways that we can place within programs and policies so it becomes a kind of part of the web of activity within disaster management, is the National Task Force for Creative Recovery. And it's it's a group that's founded on the idea that disaster resilience is collective responsibility for all sectors and that cross-industry collaboration is essential to finding effective ways and sustainable ways to face the challenges ahead of us and and particularly we're coming from the focus um, of culture and the arts. So could you speak a bit about your experience of that? What was your experience of being in that conversation um, and why you think cross-industry collaboration Uh, is important or how you think it could effectively resolve some of these, uh, uh, how it could resolve some of the issues that you've just been talking about in terms of shared responsibility or um, given given authority, I suppose, for people who do come with some sense of skill and understanding of working in this very complex environment.
1: Firstly, it's a really excellent initiative and I've been really pleased to be involved and um, every conversation that we, we have in those, um, those forums are enriching and, are, you know, insightful um, and that is, I mean, that's the benefit of a cross-industry, um, cross-sector um, forum like that is that you, you design from different perspectives and, you know, getting that balance right so that you, you can actually build in um, different viewpoints about the role of arts and culture in recovery and in preparedness and, and thinking about the members of that group, you know, you, there are different perspectives and you can see the way that those discussions can inform the practice of each of the members um, and then obviously more broadly um, as the, the work of the group, um, you know, lands and becomes uh, more public. Um, but thinking about, you know, government, um, you know, is is setting policy and is setting programmatic uh, initiatives or funding packages that really need perspective built into them. And I can, I can mm. see in those discussions how valuable um, the insights about the role of the arts and culture is to that and how, um, you know, it takes away the sort of what can be a simplified um, perspective of arts and culture um, into, you know, a, a deeper understanding of its role as a, a sort of developmental practice and therapeutic tool, et cetera. So, I mean, really, it's the only way, isn't it? Anytime we design anything, you just have to bring in diversity of perspective and um, you get better better outcomes.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the benefits for us is, you know, we start to be able to share a common language because, you know, we come from different <laughs> different mm. uh, places, but it's not to say we're saying different things. It's just trying to find the language which comes becomes a kind of collaborative bridge for us to see see value and see purpose in what. Each of us is doing from from our own perspectives.
1: Yes, and a translation of sorts mm. as well mm. into different sectors, um, which sometimes is
0: what's needed. Well, as we've discussed, the challenges ahead are not easy. We've got quite a lot of work to do, and um, uh, it we're in. We're really grateful to have an organisation like yours. I think it's so vital that that you you are able to encompass um, so many different voices and to really recognise the deep value of those smaller, intrinsic mm. places that make up the um, Australia, the beautiful country that we live in. Mm. FRR has contributed so much in the research space and as an organisation mm. you've worked alongside communities and researchers to build a strong evidence base around a range of topics of importance to the rural and regional communities. Now, your most recent study is called Heartbeat of Rural Australia – Can you tell us a bit about that study and some of the top-line outcomes of that research? It's a pretty important document to come out at this point in time, particularly when we're talking about uh, tiredness and um, the need for reinforcing our community leadership.
1: Yes, FRRR commissioned that study uh, late 2021. We were noticing a lot of anecdotal themes about what was happening in rural communities, particularly... um, in relation to the cumulative effects of successive disasters, um, including drought, which a lot of regions have been in prolonged drought for a number of years and some, you know, going to a decade-long drought. Um, So we were we were noticing some themes that related to volunteer fatigue, um, the ability to just apply for grants. We were seeing some things happening in terms of what we were receiving requests for, um, And we were really acutely aware of the impacts on isolation and, you know, the potential risks to community fabric in um, particularly regions that had experienced significant lockdown periods during the pandemic. So we worked with Survey Matters and Data Analytics um, to commission that survey, um, targeting quite grassroots, not-for-profit organisations and particularly smaller rural and remote areas. And the top line findings, none of which were surprising, um, very much validated what we thought was happening, but nonetheless provides a good evidence base. And we hope platform for organisations to use for themselves um, in their own advocacy. Um, But really, you know, volunteerism is reducing. Um, The study overall found that it's reduced by about a third um, across communities. So there's a a story of less people actually doing more work. The work itself has increased and the complexity of the work has increased, um, particularly for those regions dealing with in a recovery context. There's also a, a bit of a trend around newer people moving to rural areas and, you know, a curiosity about mm-hmm. how to harness that, how to bring those people into the community, how to kind of transition and, and reimagine volunteerism. And then there's, there was a lot of um, top-line insight about um how unhelpful some of the funding systems and constructs are for -for not-for-profit organisations. So significant piece about the need to actually resource the capacity of the organisations themselves. Um, So we heard from organisations who um, can't get grant funding to support insurance costs, for example. And without insurance costs, they literally, or without their insurances, they literally can't operate. Um, And their fundraising capacities, so in many rural communities, um, events and in-person things are the primary channel for community fundraising. And so through the pandemic, that was completely decimated. And a lot of the organisations that responded um, literally lost the majority of their income source overnight. With the pandemic um, and the, the sort of closure of face-to-face events, um, which meant that then seeking grant funding or trying to get support for their activities um, within programs that had very restrictive um, criteria and guidelines um, really placed them at risk of being able to keep operating. Um, so there's a, I guess, a thing about the viability of organisations and um, sustainability with quite narrow funding. Uh, revenue streams.
0: Mm. Yeah, such key, such key information, and in some ways not mm. surprising. It's great to have it articulated so that we can agitate for some change. And in some ways, it's not big things, is it? it's just recognizing reality and trying to manipulate the systems that we have without necessarily having to toss everything out.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the report includes some very mm. uh, clear. Uh, suggestions from respondents about what they'd like to see. So there's clear yeah. guidance. Not yes. all of it's very hard.
0: <laughs> yes, it's a great report, and it's interesting. Like one of the things that we're always hearing, particularly in the recovery space, is that uh, added overwhelm for even organisations that seem fairly stable in their community in terms of support to take on the extra uh, requirement and the deeper work required in in uh, troubled times. Uh, just pushes them beyond capability, really. Yes,
1: yeah, and I think, you know, there have been assumptions about digital connectivity um, and the ability for those organisations and and community activities to continue virtually, which we know um, is not the story in quite significant parts of regional Mm. Australia, Um, let alone, Mm. you know, connectivity, um, capability and skills, comfort uh, and access to hardware and equipment, Um, you know, there's... It's it's not an even playing field out there at all.
0: Uh, I'd like to finish by asking you in the midst of all of these challenges and the huge job that you have, Natalie, um, it's pretty overwhelming sometimes. I think sometimes I look with very weary eyes and I wonder what gives you hope. Like what are the things that keep you going? Because Sometimes I think that's very difficult, and there's a lot of talk around at the moment around um, lethargy and incapacity to be able to see ways forward. So, what's your key way of hanging on and seeing hopeful futures?
1: Well, you know, working with people like you helps, um, and others in our you know in our community of practice. Um, so, you know, it's always better together, uh, and you know, there's definitely a collective. Um, Will and, you know, it might feel slow, but I think we are having movement towards more community-centred practice, if not community-led all the time. But um, certainly, you know, I think different questions are being asked, different um, approaches are being tried, uh, and, you know, there, there's a genuine, I think, move towards recognising the importance and value um, of this work. You know, we've, we've certainly gotten beyond... Bells and whistles and and building things um, when we're thinking about mm. recovery. There's this definitely a, a depth of thinking um, and practice that's evolved. Um, so that gives me hope that change can happen.
0: Well, it's interesting. I've been listening to some conversations from scientists, climate scientists, and you know the the the, result, the kind of focus that they end up in with you know the most important thing for us Mm. into the future is people you know they're the things that give us purpose but they're also the the um, network around us that will hold us when things become more difficult um or more challenging or more beautiful or however we want to see it and you know i think again the work that frrr does is really focus that focus um on the strength of who we are and what comes from ensuring people connect and start to build stronger relationships. Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, it is all we can do, isn't it? it? It is about people. We we have the ability yeah. to change things. Um, it does come down to, uh, for you know, at the risk of a, a bit of a um, cliche, but it does come down to collaboration, which is far harder, as we know, than it, it appears. And
0: Well, we're not taught... That we're not taught that skill, are we? <laughs> you know, we we it is a new it's a skill that we have to relearn. How do we do that? And how do we do that with dignity and equality, so that we all have a, a position to be able to hear our story and hear our voices in the decision making?
1: So that's you know, I think that there is there is hope in in the um, the collective um growth that i think we do experience through crisis um the i mean i think there is a momentum around um around action on climate change um we just have to really um Mm. focus and put the money in the right places and that's not easy but we're you know i think there's an urgency Mm. um surfacing in the mainstream that's really important
0: yeah and maybe this is our opportunity i suppose this is what Mm. Keeps me hopeful <laughs> that, you know, when we when we are looking at our future, this is our opportunity to really get back to the key notions of humanity and and how we engage with each other. And you know, it's, we've got a big culture shift ahead of us, haven't we? Yeah,
1: and I think the pandemic has helped in that way. There are some things that I'd like to see us hold on to.
0: Yeah, so many beautiful um, things that have come out of it, and you just think, oh have we been sitting in that have we been sitting in that space long enough to understand the value <laughs> but you know it's uh, fabulous like even i have the privilege of meeting a lot of people through our training which is about trying to build more connected communities and you know the small so but such instrumental things that are happening at a local level which you would see through your grant programs is uh, so encouraging i've got building going on <laughs> Yes, we nearly got you through got a it with that. In the background, have you? <laughs> oh, uh, anyway, so maybe Natalie, we say thank you here, and it's so great to speak with you. It's a, such important work you and your team are doing at FTR and we really appreciate uh, your contribution into into our space as well. And um, look forward to working with you more into the future. Likewise,
1: thanks, Scotia.
0: Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation and a special thanks to Natalie for making the time to speak with me. We will include links in our show notes for the FRRR reports we've discussed and I strongly encourage you to head to their website to see the full range of resources available there. If you'd like to access episode transcripts and research links related to this podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au where you can find all our past episodes and materials relating to each one. This podcast is produced by me, Skosja Monkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. We'll be back next month for another conversation. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening.